Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a very, very rainy San Francisco. It's been raining, it seems, for weeks on Friday, December the 30th, 2022. Some people might suggest that that reflects the raininess of the year, the darkness, a miserable year for many people. It's also been raining in Portland, probably more than it's been raining in San Francisco, which is appropriate because uh, we're going to be talking culture and perhaps misery with my friend and frequent contributor to Keen On, uh, William Derasewicz. Uh, he had a new book of essays out, The End of Solitude, that he came on. He uh, many people will be familiar with his earlier work, The Death of the Artist, in particular, Excellent Sheet, which is when I became acquainted with his work. He is um, a cultural commentator, perhaps some people might suggest a little too pessimistic, but certainly very honest. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us, as I said, from a, a rainy Portland. Uh, Bill, um, has 2022 been another rainy year for culture generally? Uh, you know, I actually don't think that this is, was such a bad year. I mean, I'm not talking about the year in the arts. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I watch and read what I can, and it's impossible to keep up with more than a tiny fraction. But just in terms of sort of the, the mood uh, and, the, and, and, well, more fundamentally reasons why we might have one mood or another, I actually think that, uh, that this year was... I feel like we're kind of digging out of the pandemic and and the sort of the sort of cortisol hangover of Trump. So I'm not going to say that I'm optimistic, but I f I feel like I feel like the dark is getting lighter at least. Bill, you've been quite outspoken. You're not alone on this front um, on the challenges, shall we say, of the culture war, not just on the right, but also from the left, the woke crowd. Um, is is the rain beginning to clear on that one as well in 2022? Do you think people are getting right. tired of these endless cultural wars? Right. I think that that's part of my sense of, let's say, decreasing pessimism. Uh, I mean, people have wanted to say, oh, we've passed peak woke. Uh, the tide is rolling back. They've wanted to say that for a while now. And I think it's too early to say that with any definitiveness. But it certainly does seem to be the case that um, people are pushing back more openly uh, in a, I think, in a range of institutions uh, or creating a range of institutions with which to push back. Um, I do think that people are getting tired of being coerced and of being silenced. But there is a tremendous amount of institutional momentum behind what we're shorthanding as wokeness because, because the sort of the what in the Soviet Union would have been called political commissars, you know, the, 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 the HR offices and the deanlets in the universities, they're in place and their job is to keep pushing this. So it's not going to be easy to roll this back, but I think we're beginning to see that it might be possible. Let's put it that way. Uh, is, is the book burning of the right, and, and I use this word metaphorically, the book burning on the left, are they equivalent? I mean, we have more and more debate about what can't, what should and shouldn't be read in school, particularly on the right in states like Florida. 
Um, are they equivalent? Some people, particularly on the left, would say it's an unfair comparison. Right. I recognize that. And I should also say, look, I, I criticize the left because I'm on the left and I, and I think that my criticism might have some effect. I, I think it should go without saying that the right has been appalling. It's been appalling politically. It's been appalling culturally, uh, including in, you know, ways that they're, that they're moving towards censorship or enacting censorship. And, and the argument from the left is always going to be, look, Censorship means the government tells you you can't read this or you can't stock this in your library or whatever. You can't teach this. And the right is using the levers of government, generally speaking, state government, to pass those kinds of restrictions. The left has, I'm not going to say the left isn't in a position to do that because it does control state governments, but that isn't how it has been doing it. Uh, it hasn't been doing it through political power. It's been doing it through cultural and institutional power. And under a narrow definition of censorship, that isn't censorship. But I think a narrow definition of censorship is really just an effort in this context to evade the actual censorship that's going on in any, in any legitimate sense. I mean, uh, so are they equivalent on the left and right? They're not the same. But I think that, well, quite frankly, I think that left censorship is actually much more powerful. It may not have legal force, but it's been going on for longer and, and it is so widespread in so many institutions that control so much of our culture and even our society that uh, uh, I would say that in terms of censorship, at least, it is the major problem. What, what it seems to me is perhaps they both groups have in common is their rejection of liberalism, the rejection of the idea liberalism in a classical million sense, John Stuart Mill's sense of liberalism, where there aren't absolute truths. They, but both right and left in America cling to absolute truths about identity and democracy and race and gender and politics. Um, do you think that is the struggle? Uh, I think, I think in many ways it is. I mean, there is still a legitimate, you know, real struggle between left and right, you know, the left half of the spectrum and the right half, the Democrats and Republicans on all kinds of issues of policy. But as you say, and other people have said, Andrew Sullivan talks about this a lot. Um, we have at the extremes now, illiberalism, the rejection of liberal in the sense that we mean it when we talk about liberal democracy. Uh, and this is why, while I still consider myself a progressive, I'm so alienated from what calls itself progressivism now, because it rejects the very principles of liberal democracy, of things like free speech and due process and equal protection, because it sees all of those as covert uh, instruments of hierarchical oppression, racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera. On the right, I mean, uh, people that, you know, Sullivan is a sort of center right, and he sees uh, illiberalism at the far reaches of his spectrum too. Uh, I mean, it may not be explicitly said, but obviously all the election deniers are, are telling us that they care more about political power, especially the ones, the politicians who use election denial cynically like Trump, political power than they care about democratic institutions. And, uh, and there's some theorists now who are even venturing towards an, ex on the right, an explicit rejection of democratic principles. Yeah, I've sort of touched on this in, in a number of shows. The, the discovery, it seems, of 
the right that you're describing of, of Lenin and Leninism and of this cult of power, uh, perhaps articulated by Peter Thiel and Steve Bannon, the idea that power is everything. So you essentially justified in doing whatever you need to do to seize power. Lenin, of course, politically was on the left. These people are on the right, but they all have a, a, a cult of power. You brought up Andrew Sullivan. He, in the interesting guy, he seems obsessed with this idea of gender and the the trans issue. He, he seems to make this central to everything he thinks about. Are you as concerned with the trans issue? It's certainly um, it's an emotional issue for some people, but it seems still very, uh, very much a, an issue of a minority. Or, or am I wrong, Bill? Um, I don't think you're. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I am exercised about the issue because it just seems it. Its manifestations can be really extreme. I mean, the fact that healthy girls are having their breasts cut off, children, you know, underage people. Uh, I mean, it's like something out of the Middle Ages. It's like this hysteria that sweeps the country. It, now, it's true. I mean, we're talking about numbers in the hundreds. Uh, we'll see how much that, you know, will it become the thousands? Uh, it's just, but it, I mean, it's going to arouse strong emotions, even if it doesn't affect a lot of people. I think for Sullivan, part of it is the feeling that it's, it's antithetical to what his movement, the gay rights movement, uh, has always been about and has managed to win. I mean, in some sense, trans ideology negates uh, the ideology of gay rights and of feminism, because if you don't have categories of gender, you don't have homosexuality and you don't have women's rights as they've been traditionally understood. But I agree with you in terms of the practical effect of this, it's still fairly minor. I think it's hard to say where that's going to go. Um, it gets a lot of attention, like I said, because it's just it's just so extreme and the claims are so extreme. You know, the, uh, uh, you know, ultimately the negation of, of of biological sex. So it's going to. Right. And, and, and the gods will have their blood on this front. Um, uh, I did a show with Jenny Kleeman, an English writer, who was talking about the intolerance on this. Of course, uh, the Harry Potter author has been. Right burnt at the stake on this one, not that she probably cares. Uh, one wonders whether it's just going to kind of go away in 2023, 2024. I, I, I do think, because I think that this is kind of a social, I mean, people talk about social contagion, especially among teenagers and children. Um, uh, I think this is kind of, um, this is, like I said, a kind of, hysteria, kind of quasi-religious hysteria that's that's sweeping through society and, and like all others before it will sort of be transient. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of people, I mean, I, I mentioned young girls having their breasts cut off, but a lot of kids now, and it's not in the hundreds, are going through physical transition, right? Uh, puberty blockers and hormones, whether they proceed to surgery or not. And these are going to have this is going to have devastating effects on their lives. Yeah, so, there's no choice. I mean, coming back to the idea of liberalism, I think liberals, when it comes to these issues, would always look for an exit, always want to have doors that we can leave on if we change our mind. The point about the trans issue is that some of the 
chemical solutions means that you eliminate doors, you're done, you're set, right? That's right. I mean, they're, we're being told that pure rockers are reversible. They're not reversible. And that's the difference between, you know, experimenting with your sexuality. Okay, so you had sex with, uh, with another boy or another man. You know, that doesn't change you. Per- it doesn't change your body. So what I was going to say is uh, partly I think this will melt away, but partly there are going to be a lot of people, and it's already starting, who are going to be really pissed off that, that, the medic, that their doctors and parents and teachers didn't protect them from their own foolish decisions, and they're going to be suing. And I think that's really what, and they're starting to do that. And I think that's really what's going to stop this. There are going to be a lot of lawsuits and a lot of angry young adults. Bill, um, you're a, a, re- a notable refugee from the university. You used to teach at Yale. Has anything happened in 2023 to uh, 2022 to make universities more relevant? Or are they like some of these debates about the trans community increasingly irrelevant in the, in the, in, in the, in the context of culture and humanism? Listen, I wish I could say that they're irrelevant. I mean, I think that there's an impulse to dismiss universities in, in, in many respects. I mean, universities are still taken as a whole. Higher education is an extremely powerful force in society. Uh, millions of people do it every year. It absorbs hundreds of billions of dollars. A lot of it has nothing to do with culture wars at all. And it's really important. I mean, we want people studying STEM fields, and not just STEM fields. Uh, the, you know, all of this cultural, culture war stuff has come out of universities. And again, we, we have this desire to say, well, it's peaking and it's, it is on its way out. Um, it's way too early to say that. Um, the, the very terms of the debate, the very vocabulary we use, I, I, I fear has been reshaped in a long-term way by the vocabulary of sort of post in, the post-enlightenment kind of continental theory that that first came into American universities as far back as the 70s and then came out of them to the rest of society. So uh, they're not irrelevant. You're also the author, as I mentioned earlier, of Death of the Artist, a a book about how creators are struggling to survive in the age of billionaires and big tech. Has anything changed on that front? A lot of stories about Elon Musk and Twitter, lots of stories about Substack. Is it is 2022 just another bad year from the point of view of, of the artist, Bill, in your view? I'm I mean, the I artist can only die once. But... Well, that was, my, you know, that was my publisher's title. I mean, they always want to talk in extremes. I mean, the subtitle, How Creators Are Struggling, it's a struggle. I, I don't see that anything has fundamentally changed there. I mean, the pandemic was, was a disaster for artists when the theaters closed and all kinds of live events that all kinds of artists depend on, whether they're nominally performers or not, were shut down. And the tech platforms, whatever happens to Twitter, I don't think Twitter has been a particularly important player in, the, in culture, although it's the way you know, artists sort of, one of the ways they stay in touch with their fans. Uh, I mean, the, the basic structure of the thing, what the internet has done by making everything free and by forcing especially independent creators to constantly be on social media or crowdfunding sites, uh, begging their supporters for you know, pennies and dimes and dollars, that hasn't changed. 
I mean, have you been tempted by Substack? A lot of people are making some money. Andrew Sullivan, right. he makes a considerable amount of money. on. He makes Substack. a fortune. Okay, so, but look, I mean, uh, Substack has the same structure as all these other platforms. I think Substack is a great thing. I'm really glad that it's broken the monopoly of, I know this is a right-wing term, but the mainstream media or the liberal media on news and opinion, I think that's wonderful. I started to write for Barry Weiss's one, which is now called the Free Press. And you could say the same thing about podcasts, also wonderful, especially given the state of NPR now. But uh, it's the same, uh, it's the sort of the same curve, uh, the same statistical distribution in all online platforms. A few people make a lot of money, and usually it's people who already were established before the platform existed, Andrew Sullivan, Barry Weiss, Matt Iglesias, you know, Matt Taibbi, all of them, right? Uh, and a, 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 larger, a larger but still small number of people who do okay and might be able to support themselves. And then a vast number, I mean, I think as of a couple of years ago, there were already over a million podcasts. God knows how many there are now. Most of those- None of them are as good as this one though, Bill, are they? Do you, how much, do you, do you make a decent part of your living through this one? Yes, I'm okay, but but I'm sure you know you probably maybe can well, tell we get, me that well you know one way or the other between audio and video we get a, a, a few million views, downloads, listens, and that generates revenue not through Substack. I have my own Substack too. I don't necessarily see Substack as the core vehicle for revenue, but you can make a decent living now as a podcaster if you're patient and strategic and of course if you have a good product and good guests like you uh uh i mean you know yes i guess you can i mean you know it's like saying if you're an actor and you work hard uh you know go to hollywood and work hard then uh and you're talented then you'll be able to make it well but, that, but that, that's not, not necessarily because by going to hollywood it doesn't guarantee anything anyone can can have a podcast i'm curious as to your take on npr you said what's going on with npr i don't listen to npr because it sounds everyone on it sound the same it sounds like it's computer generated what's your problem with npr it, it swung very hard towards identity stuff, especially with George Floyd. And literally, uh, you know, I get in the car, I turn it on, which is pretty much the only time I listen to it because I can't stand it anymore. And I would say more than half the time you turn it on and the story that's in progress is about race or sometimes about gender or some other identity. It isn't the category. same true of the New York Times and maybe the Washington Post? Um, it's true to a lesser degree. I mean, the Times and the Post, I don't really read the Post, but they still run a lot of stories about a lot of things. And the angle isn't always... What do you to... rely on for your information then? I mean, Barry Weiss's thing that you write for, it has its own biases and obsessions. I agree. I, I Listen, I still read the Times for my news. I mean, I think, I mean, the Times is huge. It's a city. And a lot of it is just straight news reporting. I'm not talking about the opinions or about the cultural coverage. Um, uh, um, I mean, that's, that's the main one. And then lots of, lots of other little sources. I mean, the, I read the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books. And Which haven't changed, for better or worse. They haven't changed very much. 
they, as they, I said, uh, you, I, I became familiar with your work with an excellent book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation uh, of American Elite. Lots. Of, this was the first book of its type. Many books have come out since, which haven't really said anything radically different. Has anything changed with these excellent sheep, Bill, in 2022? Are they becoming more or less like sheep? Uh, young people, particularly at universities, are young elite. I, again, I don't see any reason. I mean, there's always a desire. People are always asking me, have things gotten better? Because they want to hear that they've gotten better. Uh, the, the basic structure, I mean, that book is really about what the elite college admissions process does to the people who go through it, the kinds of young people and then therefore adults that this whole system, this whole meritocratic system of higher education creates, which are these horrible risk averse, uh, self-dealing, uh, um, narrowly specialized technocrats that who, who've been running the, the world for the last few decades. I, I mean, what's that's, that's nothing, true, nothing about the, that has changed. That, so the thing that's adds to the fire, which makes them so problematic and annoying, is they're not only technocrats, but they're, they're greedy for virtue. They think they're right. I think okay. technocrats usually accept they're just technocrats, but these people are a mix of, of a technocracy and a priesthood. This is what's changed. This is what's changed since that book came out in 2014, right? That was, and I finished it in 2013. Wokeness was really just beginning. I mean, you have to only look back retroactively to be able to say that's around when it started. So that was new. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there was always this tinge of, you know, meritocracy, it's the very word, you know, merit, we're the best and the brightest, but it's really become this, this intense, um, uh, this intense belief in one's own virtue and right to rule and right to dictate the manners and morals of of everybody else. So wokeness, I mean, I've written about this. Wokeness kind of came in and has been synergistic with the whole excellent sheep syndrome. I mean, among other things, because I mean, excellent sheep or meritocracy really is about self-dealing. You don't really want to look it in the face, but you're doing this. You know, you're clawing all the other, you know, past the other kids in high school to get into Harvard so that you can have more wealth, power, money, status, freedom, comfort than everybody else. And, and feel good about it and speak about injustice around the world. I wonder. Well, but you do that in order to feel good about that. Right. That's the point. And, you, you know, you 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 stand there in the quads in your very expensive universities, decrying the way that universe, your university acquired the wealth that you are enjoying. It's 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 outright hypocrisy. If you're really so upset that, you know, Brown University built its money through the slave trade. You don't have to go to Brown University. Go to the University of Rhode Island if you want. But nobody does that. Yeah, we'll have to ship you into my daughter's college, Bryn Mawr. You'll be stoned or burnt at the stake, Bill. Um, it seems to me as if all this is piece, a part of something broader, which is the existence of a, a very rigid American aristocracy in a culture which was built on hostility to aristocracy, a political economic system that, that perhaps it was in part mythological, in part truth, that it was designed to be against aristocracy. Can, can this, will this contradiction eventually just blow up? Well, I think, I, I mean, I think that's what we've been seeing. 
and this is, I said this in Excellent Sheep 2014, I did not see Trump coming, of course, nobody did, but I think he was a fulfillment of an intimation that I already had, which was especially post 2008, that, that what effectively, what you're calling an aristocracy. So basically we had, it's been, it's been kind of a push and pull in American history. There was a sort of the founders were themselves a kind of aristocracy. And then there was a lot of populism uh, uh, sort of as the economy grew and new, new, new sort of classes came in. But then what we, what we came to call the WASPs, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant aristocracy, which arose in the Gilded Age, kind of asserted itself. And by the 60s, it had become intolerable. And there was this huge revolution in college admissions. And so now Jews and Catholics and black people and women, these were, these were also you know, all male colleges, uh, were, able, were allowed to come in. And we really did change our leadership class. We really did break the power of the old wasp aristocracy. But what happened is that the upper middle class and upper class families figured out a way to use that meritocratic process that was supposed to be leveling to reinforce their own class position by laundering it through the, pro the admissions process. You basically stuff your kids through full of educational resources, send them to fancy public private schools, and they're gonna have, a, uh, you know, they're gonna be on third base when it comes to the getting into the Ivy League. That's what you're talking about. That's the aristocracy we have now. It seemed clear to me already by 2014 that that system had lost its legitimacy. Everybody understood that it wasn't really a meritocracy anymore that we didn't, you know, even typical middle-class families didn't have the same shot at, at getting to the, you know, top 10 or 20%. I mean, then there are numbers about this. Social mobility is much lower, has been much lower in the U.S. than it was in previous generations. And I think the populist revolt on the left and the right is a reflection of that. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that there's much life for Trumpism after Trump and DeSantis conceivably could could uh, wage a culture war much more um, effectively. What you're saying then is that we need to go back to the post-Marxist, maybe Gramsci in particular. I mean, who who wrote well on this, on power and culture? Oh, gosh. Um I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give well-informed recommendations, but to me, you know, I mean, yes, you can talk about, you know, Gramsci and hegemony and theories of power, but to me, and maybe this is simplistic, but, you know, I'm a Bernie Sanders guy. This is, again, rooted in not just in economic inequality, but in, but in a, a lack of sufficient economic mobility. And so the way to address it I mean, this is the problem with no wokeness is that it's, it's, it's a theory of power that also says that power is, you know, enacted through discourse, right? This is Foucault, right? So we have to change the discourse. We're going to change the language. And this is how we're going to affect revolution. And we're going to break down hierarchies by writing the word black with a capital B. I mean, to me, it's ridiculous. We need to attack these problems at their economic root. We need to find ways. We're not going to go back to the New Deal. That was its, its own period. But we need to find ways to make the world fairer for all the people who have been left behind and their black people and their brown people and their white people. And I think once we do that, uh, a, lot of the po a lot of this poison is going to be drained out of our political discourse. I mean, Republicans and Democrats, but especially Republicans, use this culture war stuff. Uh, but... It, um, 
but but the but the but the but the thing that their supporters are really angry about, I think, is not critical race theory in schools and gender stuff, and it's that they that they've gotten screwed, that their communities have fallen apart, that they're not going to be able to make a better life for their own kids. And you take that away, you do something about that, and I think. Well, I said it already. Well, let's end on that note, Bill. Uh, what would you like then? You, you put your cards on the table. You're a, a Bernie person. What would you like to see in 2023? Well, um, you know, we, there's, there was talk during the pandemic about the unions making a comeback. There was that victory at the Amazon warehouse. Unfortunately, we did a show on that yesterday, actually. Followed by a couple of defeats. Well, you must have talked about it. Um, I would like to see that. Um, I would like to see uh, people continue to um, find their courage in speaking back on wokeness. But I think, I mean, I think in many ways the next two years are going to be really dissatisfying politically because we're going to have divided government in Washington. And pretty soon we're going to be in the midst of, an, of a presidential campaign because they now take a year and a half. Um, I, 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 hopefully the economy will continue to improve. In other words, Bill, it's going to rain for the next two years. We're all going to be living in Portland, right? Yeah, buy umbrellas. <laughs>